Well, you might want to take a moment, there it comes again, and pull out your uh, notes so you can follow along in today's message if you'd like. I'm going to dive right into Jonah chapter 2 and read it. I'm going to back up actually one verse from what you'll see on the screen, the very end of chapter 1, verse 17, because it reminds us of the context. So here's, here's what it says. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Talk about a God who can make the impossible happen. How do you survive in the belly of a big fish? From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. Jonah's basically saying, I was already as good as dead. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry, ground, dry land. So I want to do start, I'm starting with a little quiz today. There's a, a set of five letters. I want to see how many know what these five letters stand for. The letters are W-I-I-F-M. Anybody know what that is? No one? Oh, someone back there knows. All right. A few people know. All right. Together... What's in it for me? What's in it for me? That's what that stands for. And you know what that is? It's probably one of the first chapters in your marketing book when you take college marketing. Because what your professor in college is going to encourage you to do when you want to market or promote or sell something is explain to the person what's in it for not me, the salesman, but for me, the buyer. Now, I want to tell you that there are, there are people who have researched this whole area of marketing. There's a very scientific reason why that question is taught to people who want to sell things. You know why? Because culturally, that's the question we're all asking. What's in it for me? 
you've heard me say before that the root of sin is actually that question. What's in it for me? It's turning everything back into self. And what's so interesting about this question is, I think hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Jonah was asking W-I-I-F-M. Lord, you want me to go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians? I mean, Dustin explained this a little bit last week. I was so appreciative that he did that. But I want to make sure you get it, so I'm bringing it right back up again this week. Do you know what the relationship between the Israelites and the Assyrians was? It was one of horrific battle, warfare, torture, because the Assyrians were brutal, brutal conquerors. Assyria was one of the first countries in the history of the world to make mandatory military service part of every citizen male's upbringing. Everyone, if you were a male and a citizen of the empire of Assyria, you would go into a three-year cycle that would go on and on and on. Not just one three-year cycle. Year one was you were conscripted into the service and you spent the entire year building whatever the emperor told you he wanted built. And the purpose of that was to harden you, muscle you up, get you strong, help you understand how to follow orders and do things for someone other than yourself. What's in it for me was not a question allowed in the Assyrian Empire. Year one. Year two of the cycle was you go fight. Now that you're hard, now that you are ready to follow orders, you go fight for a year. Year three, you get a year to go back and live with your family. Year four, you're back to building again. Year five, back to fighting again. Year six, okay, you get another year off. And that went on and on until you were no longer able as a man to fight. That's what life in the Assyrian Empire was like. Now, the Assyrians knew they were the first terrorists, terrorist nations. And one of the things they did was they built these big, artistic bass reliefs. If you've ever been to the Oriental Institute right here in Chicago, you may have seen an example of things like this. They, they put these pictures in the cities that they conquered to remind them, don't mess up because we're going to torture you if you do. Now, There's an article that I read, The Ten Horrors of Being Conquered by the Assyrian Army. I'm going to read just one of the ten horrors to you, okay? Now, if you have little kids, you might want to close their ears. The Assyrians created tablets that showed them torturing their enemies to let the next city know what was coming. These showed them skinning their victims alive, blinding them, and impaling them on stakes, One Assyrian king named Ashurbanipal II has left a whole series of these tablets behind, and the descriptions are positively terrifying. 
I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. Sorry, guys. This is, this is who Jonah is being asked to preach to. He boasts in one. I burned their adolescent boys and girls. A pillar of heads I erected in front of the city. It's hard to read these words. Let's go on. By the time their armies reached your walls, these stories would have spread. Every person watching their chariots approach would know that compared to the fate the Assyrian army brought, death would be a relief. Now put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Maybe Jonah had family members because the Assyrians came in and conquered parts of Israel who were treated this way. Maybe Jonah had friends, former neighbors, who were tortured by the Assyrians. Now sometimes we think we have it bad in today's world. We think we maybe live in a violent world. We can't even imagine the violence of some of the ancient empires and how they treated other people. And now along comes God, a gracious and good God, right? And he says to Jonah, I want you to go to the capital of Assyria, a city named Nineveh, and I want you to tell them that I love them. I care deeply about their souls. I want them to repent of their terroristic ways. And when they repent and turn away from their terroristic ways, I'm here. Just like the Father that Jesus will one day tell about in a parable of a son who is extremely sinful and comes running home, and his father waits for him with open arms. I'm that father with open arms. Even today in Jonah's day, I'm that father with open arms. And today in our day, 2023, I'm that father with open arms. Now you're Jonah. And God comes to you. After you've been treated like that, what are you going to do? Oh, yippee, God. You know, I've been waiting for this assignment. I'll just share with you if it was me. I would have been right alongside of Jonah on that boat. You want me to go there? I'm going there. There is no way I am preaching your grace and forgiveness to these people. Uh-uh. It ain't gonna happen. Well, we heard last week what happened to Jonah when he tried to go the opposite way. And now, after he nearly drowns, we, we heard it, you know, he says, I, I sunk to where the mountains of the sea had their, had their bottoms. I had seaweed wrapped around my head. God... Remember that God, the gracious God? He graced me when I was rebellious and was running 180 degrees the opposite direction from where he wanted me to go. And he sent a big fish to swallow me. 
what's in it for me? Jonah's answer was, there's nothing in this for me. There's nothing in this for my family. There's nothing in this for my nation. No, God, I don't want to go to the Assyrians and tell them about your grace. Please don't make me go. And God plucks him out of drowning in grace, swallows him up inside this big fish. And now what happens is the question. So the question for you and me, first of all, is how do you view God? And I want you to write that on your notes if you're following along with your notes. How do you view God? And we're going to look at how Jonah viewed God. Jonah knew, didn't he? And let me tell you, I love Jonah. You know why I love Jonah so much? He's so real. This is not going to be the only time that Jonah has to repent in four short chapters. If you know anything about this book, Jonah repents here and then messes up again. Because he's angry. Because he's upset at God and the Assyrians. And in this deep emotional state, he's not going to just mess up once, repent, and go on his merry way. He's going to mess up a couple of times in four chapters. Wonder how many times he messed up in his entire life. How do you view God? Well, let's look at Jonah. Jonah's remembering the belly of the big fish, right? He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled around me, about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. First of all, Jonah says, I think you're the one that put me in that ocean. I mean, not like first cause, the sailors who wanted to get me out of their boat because I encouraged them to do that. They're the ones who picked me up and threw me out. But Lord, that was really you, wasn't it? You wanted me to stop running from you. You wanted me to stop going away from you, rebelling against you. But he also says, and you have to ask yourself, why does he think he can even do this? Why does he think he can still pray? If this is the God who's tossed him into the ocean and had him swallowed by a big fish, and now he's in the belly, the stomach of this big fish with the fish's stomach acids swirling all around him, and he goes, you know what I need to do? I need to call on the God who threw me into the water. I'm not sure that would have been my first thought. I, I think I would have maybe thought, maybe I just better leave this God alone. Keep him at a distance. But that's not how Jonah viewed God. You see how important our view of God is? Even in all his distress, in all his anger, in all his rebellion, Jonah thought to himself, God wants me to go to Nineveh because he's gracious. And I don't want to go because he's gracious. But maybe he'll also, because he's gracious, be gracious to me. Maybe he can turn a grave into a garden 
maybe he can do something really miraculous and deliver me from this belly. And so he cries out. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Do you hear those words? I, I don't know what's distressing you right now. I don't know what's upsetting you. What's making you feel like, God, I just can't do this. That's how Jonah was feeling. But I do know that because Jonah viewed God as a gracious, a giving, a welcoming, a connecting, and including God. God even wanted, for, for goodness sake, God even wanted to include the Assyrians? And that's how he viewed him. Now, how do you view God? Let me put some words up there. Do you... Do you view God as someone that has grace that is greater? That's the theme of this series, Jonah, grace that is greater. Or do you tend to view God as someone whose demands are deeper? Not grace that is greater, but demands that are deeper. Could you see how Jonah might have thought that in this moment? Demands that are deeper or dopier? God, what a dopey demand. You want me to go to Nineveh? They're not going to repent, God. That's just stupid. There's not one shred of evidence that these violent, terroristic people will ever turn around because I go there and say, you should believe in God, repent of your sins, and trust in Him. That's dopey, God. And sometimes do we feel that God's demands are dopey or too deep? You know, I've talked to a lot of unbelievers, people who used to believe, people who were once in a church, and you know, I've heard this over and over and over again from them. Why do people leave God? For many, God's just too much for them. They just can't, God is, he's too crazy, he's too weird, too forgiving, too gracious, and they're like, I'm out. Because I can't follow a God who is like this. Brenton Brown is a fabulous musician, Christian musician. And um, he's written a lot of really famous songs. We've sung some of them. I won't get into the titles of them today. But several years ago in the big California fire that ran through it, his entire house burnt down. And there he was in the belly of his own big fish with all of his possessions, except for miraculously, somehow he had a little like shed out in the backyard where he wrote his music and had his instruments stored. For whatever reason, that didn't burn down. But here's what Brenton Brown says after that experience. It's kind of, kind of cool. It's a picture. Nope, it should be on a picture. Maybe it didn't get back in there. Ah, no. Go to the next picture after this. See if we can get none. It's all right. It's all right. 
This is what happens when the pastor meanders all over the place and those poor guys back there can't follow me anymore. It, what he says is, God is the giver of life. God is the creator of life. And do we somehow foolishly think that God is one day going to run out of life to give? And he's saying that in the context of everything's gone, everything's burnt down, and now am I going to sit here and complain to this God as if he's a taker, not a giver? No, I will never do that because the God I know, the way I view God from the Bible is he is always a giver. Here's, here's what I want you to, uh, to look at. First Timothy, Paul says the same to him, First Timothy 6.17 Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. Okay? Pride and wealth out. What's in? These are, these are shaky. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's where our hope belongs. Not in our actions, not in what we can provide, not in the wealth that God has given us. Our hope needs to be in God. So here's what I want you to write down first. Here's the view I think the Bible tells us to have of God. God wants far more for me than he wants from me. Am I saying that God never wants things from you? I'm not saying that. God wanted something from Jonah. <laughs> you go preach. I'm not saying that, but in the grand scheme of things, if we put on a balanced scale the things that God wants from me and the God wants for me, can I tell you what I think that scale would look like? It would fall down so heavy on the side of the things God wants for me that the stuff God wants from me would scatter to the four winds. It would just go boop, because God wants far more for you than he wants from you. All right, let's go on to point two. What's Jonah do next? Where do my views lead me when I'm tested? Here's, this is where it gets really important. Because guess what? It's pretty easy to view God as a giver as long as you've just received a bunch of gifts. But when your house burns down, when you're in the belly of a big fish, when you've been thrown into the ocean, when life is fruit basket upset, do I still see God mainly as a giver, not a taker? Where do my views lead me when I am tested? Well, let's look at Jonah. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Do you hear how Jonah is talking here? He's being tested, isn't he? Is that fair to say? I think so. And he, he, he doesn't sugarcoat the test. This is hard. This is bad. This hurts. I think I might die. He says all of those things. He doesn't sugarcoat the test at all, but how does he end? This is the beauty. But you, Lord my God, 
brought my life up from the pit. Is that how you see God? Do you view God even in your test? This is the God who no matter what happens will turn this grave into a garden, who will take this pit, throw a ladder down into it, climb down it in it himself because he is the capital S Savior. Savior from my sins, but Savior from my life at times. And he will throw me over his shoulder and climb back up the ladder so that I am out of this pit. You, he will bring your life up from the pit. That's what Jonah is saying. This is, that's, that's what happened. And it did. The end of chapter 2, the big fish, you know what it does, doesn't, don't you? Vomited him right up on the shore. He was delivered. This is the God that we see. Now, here's the struggle. The struggle is, what's in it for me? The, the struggle is often that we view life, also life with God, as needing to get over a bar. It's like high jump, right? Now, you've probably heard of the Fosbury flop. This isn't Fosbury, by the way. This is a newer picture of a, a champion from three or four years ago, but he's still doing the Fosbury flop. Because Fosbury realized that if instead of trying to jump over it sideways, he would go over it backwards, he could be more successful. And he was. He won the Olympics doing that. His whole life was built around getting over a high jump bar. And how can I do it? What contortions? What twists? How high must I jump to get over the high jump bar? Guess what? Spiritually, a lot of us think that way too. And who's setting up the high jump bar? God is. Because God is, in some of our minds sometimes, more of a taker than a giver. And that is going to completely skew things for you. If you view God that way, you're going to be a spiritual Fosbury. You're going to be constantly asking yourself, how do I twist? How do I turn? How high can I jump so that God is pleased? When will I ever be worthy in his sight? And some of you will rightly suspect, I will never be worthy in a perfect God's sight. You know who I like to study when I think about human religion, human natural religion? I actually have a faith that I like to look at. And part of it is because I grew up surrounded by people who have these beliefs. I love to look at the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. You know why? The Church of Latter-day Saints, while I don't necessarily love to stand up here and criticize people of other faith, I will tell you it is a completely man-made religion. If you want to know how man-made religions, even if it's not formal, even if it's just a religion in my mind of me getting over the bar with God, this is how it feels. They write it out. That's the beauty. So let me show you a quote. Over the past number of weeks, I've had some conversations that have made me ponder the meaning of the word worthy. If you know any LDS people, the word worthy is constantly on their minds. They're trying to get over the bar of worthiness with God. 
As I recently talked to a young 20-year-old man, I discussed his attitude about going on a mission. He said, I wanted to go, but I'm not worthy. I don't, I don't get over the bar with God. Go to the next one. On another occasion, I asked a young lady who was contemplating marriage if she was going to the temple. She said, I would like to, but I'm not worthy. In response to the same question of who determined her unworthiness, she too said, I did. You see how we humans are? What's the suspicion always in our mind with regard to God? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. That's how we feel. One more. A member mother who had known for many weeks that her daughter had planned a temple marriage was asked if she was going to attend the temple ceremony. This is the mom. Are you going to go to your daughter's wedding? No, I am not worthy to get a temple recommend, which means a permission slip to go into the temple where you worship God. I can't get in there because I'm not worthy to go to the temple. That's a quote from Elder Marvin Ashton, a Mormon leader. Why do I put that up? I put that up to show you what your normal human religious thoughts are going to be. Now, I'm not saying you're Mormons. I'm saying we all operate on this principle of wondering what, what do I have to do to make myself worthy to God. The problem with that is the Bible, Jesus doesn't operate on that principle. His principle is, look at what I've done because I've already made you worthy through my blood, through my sacrifice, through my death, through my life, through my resurrection. You are worthy in the sight of God. That's the gospel. And that's the beautiful message that Jonah was sent to Preach to the Assyrians. And what did Jonah think? These people are not worthy. Are you kidding me? He wasn't just worried that he wasn't worthy. He was rebelling at the thought of preaching Christ's worthiness to a group of people that he thought could in no way ever be worthy of such a message. So what the question is, what, where do my views lead me when I'm tested? Well, they're going to only lead you in two directions. You know what those are? You're either going to worship, which is what Jonah did. I'm going to pray. Or you're going to worry because you're thinking about how do I get over the bar? How do I prove myself worthy in this situation? And our whole world is built about around proving ourselves worthy. So most of us, even as Christians, think, well, isn't it just natural to think I have to prove myself worthy to God too? And the answer is no, because Jesus, through the gospel, has already declared you worthy in the sight of God. Philippians 4, 4-7, take a look at this. Rejoice in the Lord always. In other words, worship always. I will say it again, worship or rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be worried about anything, but in every situation by worship and worship 
and worship, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Worship or worry. And if you're worrying, it's because you think you're Fosbury and you need to flop over that bar somehow in your own strength. But if you can worship like Jonah did, it's because you have the right view of God. He's a gracious God who delivers even when I've been rebellious. All right. In times of testing, my views lead me to worry or worship. All right, third point. Where do my views lead me when it's my turn to act? Remember, I didn't say God never asks things from us. He does. There does come a time when it's your turn, my turn, our turn together. That's why we have volunteer fair Sundays to act. To do something in response to all this mercy and grace and love. So where do my views lead me? My views of God lead me when it's my turn to act. Well, let's see what Jonah does. Those who cling to worthless idols, idols turn away from God's love for them. So if you are idolizing yourself, your own abilities, your own Fosbury flop, if you're idolizing another religion, you're going to turn away from this amazing grace of God. But I, Jonah says, with shouts of grateful praise, with worship, will sacrifice to you, will worship some more by making a sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Whatever I've told you I will do, God, I'm going to do it now. I'll go to stinking Nineveh. Okay, God, I'll go. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. When I get there, I'm going to tell them what I don't want to tell them, but because you told me to tell them, I'll tell them. You are a God who saves. You are a God who loves. You are a God who gives. You are a generous God who wants to include everyone, even you stinking Assyrians. He loves you too. I'm struggling with the love, but God does love you. Because I'm afraid of you, to be honest. I'm afraid of you. I've heard the stories. I've seen the bass reliefs. But Lord, because of your perfect love, I'll go. I'll fulfill my vow. Paul sounds exactly the same in 1 Corinthians 5. Remember Paul the murderer? The guy who should never have been a Christian? If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you, Corinthians. We care about you so deeply. For Christ's love, why can't I stop preaching, Paul is basically asking. Why can't I stop telling even you ridiculous Corinthian people the gospel of God's love for you? Well, there's an inner compulsion brought about by the fact that God even forgave me. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live, meaning you and me and the Corinthians, those who live and we are alive, should no longer live for themselves, should no longer say things that are foolish like what's in it 
for me, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We live for the Lord. That's what Paul says. There's a band, Wren Collective, my favorite band, my favorite Christian band. There they are. They're a little bit of a motley crew, but they're an Irish band. I just love Wren Collective, right? Well, they've been through some ups and downs, too. I want to show you some lyrics. I would have had the band sing this song, but I didn't know until, like, Friday that I wanted to put these lyrics, and maybe we can put it in in the future, but we'll see. Listen to what they say. I'll find a way to praise you from the bottom of my broken heart, because I think I'd rather strike a match than curse the dark. Yeah, I'll find a way to thank you, though the bitterness is real and hard, because I'd rather take a chance on hope than fall apart. I don't think I'm ready to surrender to the dark, even if my daylight never dawns, even if my breakthrough never comes, even if I'll fight to bring you praise, even if my dreams fall to the ground, even if I'm lost, I know I'm found, even if my heart will somehow say, hallelujah anyway. No matter how bad it gets, I'm going to sing hallelujah anyway. Praise the Lord anyway. I'm going to worship, not worry, Lord. Yeah, I hear a hymn of triumph in the wilderness of my lament. Think Jonah. In the lowlands or the mountaintops, I won't forget all that goodness that you have shown me. Is God a taker or a giver? The promises that you have kept. There's better days on the horizon up ahead. No matter how bad it is sometimes. Hallelujah. Anyway, I'm going to worship, not worry. And I'm going to act because I've first been loved. Now I'm going to go love others. Because I've first been graced and forgiven. I'm going to go grace and forgive others. Because I've first been served by the Lord Jesus who took up the towel and washed my feet. I'm going to take up the towel and wash someone else's feet. All the while singing hallelujah anyway. Here's what I want you to write down. When I see God as a contributor... I also want to contribute. You will feel compelled like Paul did. Here's your next step. I will lean on God, trusting him to contribute to my life and in turn contribute to his kingdom. Let's say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, just a couple of family matters. I already announced that today is our volunteer fair. You couldn't have missed the tables on your way in. I want to encourage you to go back to the kitchen and grab yourself some ice cream. 
Right, do we leave the ice cream back in the kitchen? I know there was some debate about that. And then come out and talk to the people behind the volunteer tables. You might just find something that you would love to do to serve at Amazing Love. Growth groups are coming up. Children's Choir on September 13th. I also want to point out AXIS class. I'm the AXIS teacher. I love teaching the middle schoolers. So if you've got a middle schooler in your family, come and talk to me after the service. Can't wait to have them in AXIS class to teach them the Bible basics. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are a giving and gracious God. And Lord, as as we are tested in this life, and we will be, we often are, help us to maintain our view through those tests that you are still a gracious God. Help us to be Jonah in the belly of the big fish. And even though we're in pain and and in darkness and wondering whether we're going to survive this experience, Lord, help us to do what Jonah did. Worship, pray, seek you from whatever belly of whatever big fish we're in the midst of right now. And not worry. Worry gets us nowhere. You command us not to be anxious about anything, but simply to replace worry with worship. Lord God, Heavenly Father, help our view to you, uh, our view of you as a giving and gracious God also to be there when we're called upon to act, to do things like Jonah, that we might not necessarily want to do right away. But help us to realize that in your love, you have given so much, including your one and only son on the cross. Help us to realize that you have given us so much love that we can't help but love you and others as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, who also taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.